Hello, hello, hello. Episode four of the Booze and Muses podcast brought to you by Teddy Grams, our unofficial drunk snack sponsor of the episode. As always, I am your delightful host, Sarah. With me is Museum Fellow of the Year, just got a new job, turned in her two weeks notice, Sarah Hickson. Say hello, Sarah. Hi, guys. How's it going? As well as Protector of the Public Trust Saxophones, Morgan Smith. Hell yes. I love that so much. I try hard. We are taking a slight deviation from our true crime talks to discuss museum scandals. We've got board members running a ride, canceled exhibits, and all that comes with the Museum of the Bible. Who's ready for some gossip? I am always ready for gossip. I've got my cheap wine spritzer. I've had a crappy day. Lay it on me. I was drinking some Trader Joe's Riesling, and the fact that it was called Riesling made me feel classy when I opened it, even though it was a total of $4.99. Okay, but Trader Joe's wine is legitimately the best cheap wine you can buy. I mm-hmm. will die on this hill. The White Zinfandel, Charles Shaw, Tubuck Chuck, as we like to call him. We love him. But anyway, okay, so we're going to start first with our oldest scandal because God loved the 70s. In 1971, there was a bit of a harumph at the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum. Artist Hans Hackey was all set to host a solo exhibition. He wanted to show through art the interconnectedness of the world. Because it was the 70s. Hippie. (laughs) Hippie. The exhibition had three parts, physical, biological, and social. As you can guess, the social section is what caused some issues. Shocking. So the exhibit included photographs of large Manhattan buildings. And the captions had information on who owned the building, how much they paid for it, their mortgage information, and who they bought it from. Several of these buildings were called out as basically owned by slumlords, like they were slums, tenement-style buildings in the 70s, but just happened to be owned by people who sat on the museum board of trustees or were with companies connected to the Board of Trustees. So on April 1st, 1971, just 29 days before the exhibit was planned on opening, which if you're in the museum world, you know that exhibits takes months and months and months. So to cancel it just 29 days before, it's like, you're already really far into this. The artist Hackey received a letter from the museum director, Thomas Messer, canceling the exhibition outright. He wasn't sure about the social systems element. He called it a muckraking venture. According to Director Messer, and this is a long statement and I'm gonna read it verbatim because I find it ridiculous, so bear with me. Director Messer said, we have held consistently that under our charter, we are pursuing aesthetic and educational objectives that are self-sufficient and without ulterior motives. 
On those grounds, the trustees have established policies that exclude active engagement towards social and political ends. It is well understood in this connection that art may have social and political consequences, but these we believe are furthered by indirection and by the generalized exemplary forces that work, that works of art may exert upon the environment, not as you propose, by using political means to achieve political ends, no matter how desirable the ends may appear in themselves. The museum claimed to be worried about liable suits from the building owners. But as previously mentioned, the building owners were members of the museum board of trustees. So Hacky, the artist, offered to remove the names of individuals, leaving only the corporation names, and the trustees still weren't having it. The second potential issue was that the final portion of the social section was Hacky was going to have visitors fill out a questionnaire providing economic, political, and demographic information about themselves. And this was likely to reveal that visitors like the trustees were only rich uppity people. So like I said, they completely canceled the exhibit 29 days before it opened and then they fired curator Edward Fry. Please discuss. I, okay. I have a lot of thoughts and I'm trying to compartmentalize here. I'm okay. I, I clung to something in the beginning of that guy's statement and I am not going to remember. Can you, can you read like the, it was like the second whatever the part was that he started to say like basically that museums shouldn't have an opinion because I want to call bullshit on that as soon as I'm done eating my teddy gram so I wasn't kidding that this was sponsored by snaps okay <laughs> so uh basically they're pursuing a aesthetic and educational objectives that are self-sufficient without ulterior motives that was it ulterior motives bullcrap even in the 70s, okay, like, from the dawn of time, museums have had an agenda, okay? Like, the idea that museums are not neutral, I guess it's a relatively new idea in the fact that it's kind of like a catchphrase that a lot of people use. It's like a buzz line, and it's a way for museums to kind of, like, put themselves out there as doing a lot more than what the public generally thinks, but museums have always had an agenda. So for this, pardon my French, for this asshat to be like, I'm sorry, we can't have this exhibit because um, it shows that we have an ulterior motive. It's just because that ulterior motive does not line up with what your ulterior motive actually is. And like Hacky became the father of like institutional critique and like calling out basically the rich white people owning museums through the board of trustees. He was well ahead of his time. So, cheers. Like, pour one out for the homie doing the Lord's work. Like, and okay. And also, there was the, the other thing that I was kind of like hinging on. We recognize that sometimes art has meaning. <laughs> art is inherently political and it's always been inherently political like you cannot separate art from 
politics or social justice or from economics or from classism. Like you cannot separate those things. I like love that he was going to take a survey of like the museum visitors and that the board potentially saw problems with that because like evaluation is like the tippity toppity of museum like standards right now like if you're an ethical like forward-thinking museum like yeah of course you're surveying your visitors about their political and social and demographic backgrounds I, I well I will say that maybe to the extent that he was planning on surveying them it does sound kind of like Invasive. something that yeah it, well but also you have to think if it's a it's a voluntary survey they don't have to give that information if they don't want to so and also if you're going to an exhibit like that you can probably imagine that those are the types of topics that you're going to be confronted by so like literally the only reason they didn't want this guy to be there is because they didn't want to be called out in their own backyard basically for being crappy and elitist because sorry to the Guggenheim I'm sure you're wonderful (laughs) now but I mean you're one of those really big institutions that has a long history of not always doing the right thing well and I also I feel like I'm being a little bit hard on the Guggenheim right now so this is my formal uh I don't want to say apology but I do want to recognize that like my statement did kind of make it sound like the Guggenheim is bad. I'm just saying that institutions like that in general that are, I mean, they've got a lot of revenue. They have a lot of money. They have a lot of really influential. They're endowed. Yeah. They have a lot of really influential, wealthy people on their boards and they're an institution that's existed for a long, long time. Like no museum is perfect, but especially when you're an institution like that, that's been around for so long, you have some massive skeletons in your closet. Oh, so I feel like this is just my personal take. If the Guggenheim, like if this gets back to the staff of the Guggenheim or the board and they're upset with us and they like reach out to us and like, we're upset with the Booze and Music podcast. That means our visitor base is way wider than I thought and we should throw ourselves a party. I was going to say, no one from the Guggenheim is (laughs) ever going to listen to this. I'm just flattering myself being like, Mr. or Mrs., or they, them, of the Guggenheim. I apologize. <laughs> They're never going to listen. In 20 years, when our resident art Sarah applies to the Guggenheim for a curator position, please don't hold it against her that she was on this podcast. What if we just, I mean, like, anonymously sent this podcast to the Guggenheim and was like, fast forward to minute 735, they talk some major crap, and that's our end. Our, like, our last episode was Don't Let Your British Nana Listen to This Podcast, and this episode will be Don't Let the Guggenheim Listen to This Podcast. <laughs> don't let don't let the majority of Fifth Avenue Manhattan listen to this, because they're all just going to be like, how dare they? I like that our branding for this is suddenly turning into, don't listen to it. <laughs> I also, so going back to the, the Guggenheim, and they... I guess I don't know if like afraid would be the right the right word but they were so I guess nervous that shit was gonna hit the fan that they fired the curator exactly like Like, we want we distance distancing ourselves 
from this completely. We don't want to be associated with this anymore. This was like your, your, your idea. And we figured that you could do your job well enough that we didn't have to be there until a month beforehand. Also, like, other than the museum director, you know that the trustees were the one arguing for firing the curator and they should not have that power. But it was clearly, it's clear from the director's actions and his argument about libel lawsuits and his fears, but he was, he was, he was afraid. He was in the trustees' pockets. But that's why there's the separation between staff and boards of trustees. And so like things like this can go forward even if the rich uppity people on the Guggenheim board are uncomfortable with it. So you, Sarah, not Hickson, um, since you have a background in journalism, maybe you can kind of answer this for me. Because as I was listening to this, like my first thought was, well, like maybe maybe it's not just because they want to like save face and not be outed for being like generally crappy people. Maybe it is genuinely because like there was fear of like a defamation or like a libel lawsuit. Mm -hmm. But in that capacity, if you have that information, which I'm imagining you got that information publicly, like, is that really, I mean, would that really be considered libel? The thing about libel is it has to be unsubstantiated and sufficiently damaging to the character of the person. The artist Hans Hackey got this information from the county clerk's office. And so it was publicly available information and the Guggenheim argued that they couldn't back it up. But the only part they couldn't back up was that he was basically referring to them as tenant style buildings, which was his opinion, which can't be charged for libel because it's clearly his opinion and his basis for that statement how much they are paying for the building, that county clerk information, their mortgage information, who they bought the buildings for. That was all publicly substantiated information and is available for fact-checking. And so absolutely, I think they had a defense against libel. So yeah, it's BS. Because it's not libel, like if it's true. Can we put that on a t-shirt? It's not (laughs) libel if it's the truth. I mean, I don't have any thoughts on the, any more thoughts on the the Guggenheim, but it's, you know, if you want a t-shirt, it's not like I don't have printing material (laughs) that I could make a t-shirt. We would, we um, could sell merch. It's great. (laughs) We would like to shout out Sarah Hickson Art as the official merchandise provider of the Booze and Muses podcast, as well as Teddy Grams, who again are our unofficial <laughs> snack sponsor of the podcast. Because Can we I also on... shout out Stella Artois as the beer of choice for me right now. Can we get <laughs> as an unofficial sued? sponsor? Can, okay, um, let's just list people who might sue us for libel. Teddy Grams. Okay, no, let's. It's not. It's not who might sue us for libel. It's a list of people that we sponsor us. Teddy Grams sponsor us. The Guggenheim sponsor us. Thank you, Stella Trader Artois. Joe's. Wine. Trader Joe's. Also, I mean, shout out to Menage a Trois. It is more expensive than Trader Joe's wine, but it's got that fancy name. It's kind of sexy. It's very drinkable. Bitch. I'm so classy. I'm classy as shit. 
Oh, wait, no, I do have a Trader Joe's story. When I was visiting my mom recently, I was in Trader Joe's with her and she saw these linen napkins and she's like, Morgan, you, I'm going to buy these for you. And I'm like, mom, I'm not classy enough for those. And a woman next to napkins. us, a woman next to us in the aisle turned and her face was just like shocked. And she just goes, come on. And I'm like, well, I'm not lady. You don't know me. Stop trying to be nice. <laughs> I love how if this was actually one of those like I mean I don't know what our listenership is like I don't know how people figure these things hey, out seven people listened to our second episode and oh, only yeah. one of them was my dad hell yeah um but imagine like if we were one of those podcasts that like actually got a lot of people listening and like you just woke up to a cease and desist letter from Trader Joe himself that was just like keep my name out of your mouth. So Trader Joe's is actually founded by the brother of the guy who founded Aldi. That is my favorite fun fact. And they like got in the fight about like how the grocery store should grow and so they founded Aldi and Trader Joe's mm. pulling out the paper so I can be more official and I am sobering up thanks to the applesauce I just had so next on our list is everyone's favorite the museum of the bible we're going to start with the hobby lobby issue background Right, the Museum of the Bible is a private organization. It opened in 2007 in Washington, D.C. It is two blocks from the National Mall, so that's some pricey real estate. It costs half a billion dollars to create. That is 500 million, if you're bad at math. And there's been no end of scandals with this organization. The same year opened, 2017, the museum chairman, Steve Green, um, who also happens to be the president of Hobby Lobby, was charged with smuggling $3 million in ancient artifacts from Iraq um, to the US. And while the museum claims that Green smuggled items were never part of the museum's collections, the Green family did provide most of the funding for the museum and also donated a lot of items to the museum, so it's not, it's not quite a good look. Several of the items uh, included cuneiform tablets from Mesopotamia. There was 11,500 items in total. And to pay for the artifacts, Speed Green wired funds to seven personal bank accounts without ever meeting with the dealer. And this was, again, $3 million. And he's like, I didn't know it was sketch, but I'm going to send it to seven different bank accounts properly hosted in Switzerland. Booze and Muse is unofficially hosted by banks in Switzerland. But I don't know that, even though I haven't met the dealer, I don't know that these are bad. So a person in the United Arab Emirates shipped these items to corporate addresses of Hobby Lobby in Oklahoma. And they were falsely labeled as things like sample clay tile. Things you think that corporate people at Hobby Lobby might legitimately be receiving. There was also false decorations about where the items originated, such as um, Turkey, instead of listing Iraq or the UAE. 
And the real kicker for me, like we needed a kicker on a scandal, is that archaeologists think some of the items were looted during or after the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. And all of the paperwork is super vague, like just incredibly vague. And as they have tried to return the items because Steve Green has been convicted of this, he is a charged felon in this case. They learned that five to 10% of the items were fake and the rest, they are having a really hard time proving where they came from to return them to the proper owners. Discuss. Well, so this is not the only time that the Museum of the Bible is caught with fake things. Wait, wait, wait. That's the next scandal. Don't get okay, me away. Okay, I'm sorry. Don't I'm sorry. I mean, I knew you probably, I'm like, I assumed that we would be starting with that one because that's like the recent one that sticks out in my mind. This episode of Booze and Muses podcast sponsored by Spoilers. Yeah, but we're definitely not sponsored by Hobby Lobby. If you need to go buy crafts, you go to Michael's or you go to Joanne's. You do not go to Hobby Lobby. I will die. This is another hill that I will die on. I have very, very, as a woman who crafts, I have very (laughs) deep opinions about Hobby Lobby. I rest my case. (laughs) All right. Um, Hey, we haven't heard from you. Oh, what do you think about the Museum of the Bible? I feel like this ties into our previous episodes of establishing that a lot of like Middle Eastern and South American countries kind of don't care if the usually artwork is stolen or what have you. But also, you dumbass for not meeting to see if it's legit not doing your research before also, you go, oh yeah let's just spend money if you were Spending buying money. it from seven like if you're buying it from one dealer but they had you wire the money to seven different bank accounts yeah because <laughs> I mean, that really, sounds legit if none of that else was a red flag it definitely should have been a red flag when they were like all right here's the thing it's on its way it's marked as a clay tile. Don't question it. Go with it. Like, that's a problem. Okay, any final thoughts about Steve Green before we move to our next Hobby Lobby scandal? Is he involved in the second one? Because dumbass, say, again. Of course he is. Is Hobby Don't... Lobby involved in both of the Museum of the Bible scandals? No, it's just that the Green family is involved in both of the museum of the bible how how is he still in charge of things (laughs) he's like this okay so this all he just runs things from his jail so (laughs) what a mom he's too rich to go to jail morgan (laughs) that's right i forgot he's uh probably uh affluent and white and conservative rich waspy men don't go to Ah, jail rich wasp men Okay, so for our third scandal, we are sticking with the Museum of the Bible. So some questions were raised about the authenticity of the museum's Dead Sea Scrolls. The scrolls were housed in a huge permanent exhibit, and some critics have called them the museum's most prized possession 
And it turns out all 16 of them are forgeries. They didn't manage to get even one real one. So the museum had an independent investigation done. They brought in experts and they produced a 200 page report about why all 16 of these scrolls were fake and were from post 2002. So they were all ancient leather marked with modern ink and then had some clay thrown over it. CEO Harry Hargraves said, quote, and I love quotes, because again, I'm a journalist. He said, the Museum of the Bible is trying to be as transparent as possible. We're victims. We're victims of misrepresentation. We're victims of fraud. Wow. Their provenance, the artifact background for Museum Non-People, it's, they're essentially missing. Guess who bought them? Steve Green was involved. And the initial collection frenzy for the Museum of the Bible, these items were obtained. There are arguments that the people who sold them to the people collecting for the museum were also deceived. So there was multiple layers of unknowingness of deception, but discussed that the centerpiece of the Museum of the Bible whose leader, Steve Green, was previously illegally importing looted items from Iraq, also had Dead Sea Scrolls. What gets me about this as a Christian person is the Dead Sea Scrolls came to Kansas when I, like, after they had first been found, like, a few years later. And I remember how religious of an experience it was for some devout Christians. They went to experience really early versions of the book that they invested their life in. You know, the words they believe have been directly descended or directly given by God. And so for the Museum of the Bible to have fake versions of the ancient Bible in it. And Christians have come in, often very religious, deep conservative Christians, and probably had a religious spiritual moment with these forgeries, to me is probably one of the biggest scandals we'll ever experience. Well, and I feel like too, with this, the thing that gets me about it is that I, I mean, lots of museums throughout the history of time have at one point or another, like, discovered that they've been swindled in some way. Like, forgeries, I mean, they end up in a museum. Like, the people who work in museums, they're fallible. They're not going to be experts in every single thing that comes across their way. So this stuff happens. But what I don't understand about how the Museum of the Bible would have 16 of these. And like we, I, I think that, I mean, there's like, I guess a rather, I was Googling the Dead Sea Scrolls, honestly, because I was trying to figure out like how many of there that are known to be in existence. And it's like somewhere around a thousand, which sounds like a big number in theory, but that's not, that's not big at all. So for this one museum to have 16 of the 1000 things that are known to exist in this entire world, you think that they would have invested a little bit more due diligence 
in determining whether or not they were real. Because if you have the money to purchase 16 Dead Sea Scrolls, you also have the money to investigate those Dead Sea Scrolls. Like, you can't just take it at face value that what you have is the real thing. And I think some of the museum opened so recently for it to be such a major institution two blocks from the National Mall in DC, $500 million. Like that's a huge museum to open, like huge. And opening in 2017, they should have learned lessons from previous organizations that they needed Providence. And especially come under fire for their interpretation of a highly political, social, religious text and all of the different things people get out of and think of the Bible, for them not to have provenance on their objects is just ridiculous because they should, they should have known that people were going to be critical of them. They should have seen it coming. And for them to collect all of these artifacts and have Steve Green buy over 11,000 artifacts without proper provenance, it is just ridiculous. Well, I mean, there's like no good jokes here. You know, it's just kind of like one of those things that's really depressing. I mean, it's, and I, and I can see this even as someone who, I mean, I wouldn't call myself religious. Like I can see like what you were saying about how so many people probably came there and had this experience. And then for them to find out that all of that was fake, I think that that's a real disservice, especially since, I mean, you know that you're a museum that even just your mere existence is going to call criticism. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, even just beyond the fact that they knew that Dead Sea Scrolls was something that was going to call a lot of attention, they're, even just them existing calls a lot of attention. So the fact that they can't, I, I don't know, the fact that they can't take the care to execute those sorts of things, it's, it's like really disappointing because like, I feel like the Museum of the Bible could be a place that is important, but they've just done so much stuff that does not help their reputation. I also feel like they're not going to get legitimate applications from people in our field with a museum background with an archaeology or a curator or a preservation background who could help them with these kind of things because in having all of these scandals they have distanced themselves from the museum world and so that if you work at the museum of the bible and then you're looking to move up in the field and you apply to a different museum they're not going to take you seriously because you worked at the museum of the bible where everything is fake yeah it almost feels like they kind of take they did the opposite of what they should have done which is like i'm gonna show them all like i deserve to exist i am real i am valid and they were just like i mean nah like they've they've completely discredited discredited themselves without anyone else even really needing to try. Like they did it themselves. This episode of Booze and Muse is not sponsored by the staff of the Museum of the Bible. We're de definitely not. We're definitely sorry. not. We're sorry guys. If you need to talk to us, if you need an outlet, you can reach out to us. We'll help you. We'll pray for you. Yeah, we'll pray. <laughs> 
that's I mean when I say we'll help you I mean prayer this is all we've got prayers from Teddy Grahams oh museum yep. of the bible bless your ever loving heart he tries you will so be hard. in my prayers Shug. you will be in my prayers okay so this has been a, I expected this to be more gossipy and fun. This has been a really sad podcast. Saturday. It was gossipy and fun in the beginning. It's just I'm when so you bring up, it's the no, it's just it's the museum of the Bible. They take all of the fun out of gossiping. I've got I've got a fun-ish final one where we can all talk crap about board members because oh my god, it's my favorite thing. My favorite thing. The board yes. board members board members are truly essential to the op i just want to get this out there board members <laughs> as- board members are essential to the operation of a museum it's wonderful when you have a really great board it is it's just absolutely horrifying when you have a bad one so just uh talking about boards Okay. I love. Uh, yeah, you're well. Back, I guess. I guess pulling from this religious trope we've been on, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> Amen. Amen. We've we've been there. We are there. It's an interesting time. Um, John, we're all like we're not majors board members. If you're listening to this, I don't mean you. You are all lovely beautiful people and anytime I mean, you come into the office i will kiss your butt please hire me full time i love you all board members listening this is for you except for the ones that board my <laughs> institution i love you final one and like always at the last one normally because i'm getting drunker but this time i'm getting more sober um I'll, I'll make it really quick. So in 2012, we go to the Missouri History Museum. And this is especially special for me because I work in Missouri and especially special for Morgan. Born and raised, baby. It's especially special for our Missouri native Morgan. I am from that show me state and uh, somewhat proud. <laughs> I feel like somewhat proud is pretty good for Missouri. Somewhat proud. My family's from Missouri, so I can talk crap. Um, Okay, so the museum staff at the Missouri History Museum wants to build a community center under the direction of President Robert Archibald. I'm not kidding. His last name is Archibald. The museum purchased a nearby plot of land for said community center and they paid $875,000 for it. The land was owned by Freeman Bosley Jr., a previous museum trustee. Red flags are going up, warning signs are going off. An investigative reporter from an area newspaper found the land was only worth for slap for dramatic effect $260,000 so less than one third of what the museum paid for it and the dramatic finale of this scandal is that President Archibald resigned but oh wait he was paid $270,000 as a consulting fee to train the organization's next president 
So he was paid more than the land was worth to train the next president for the situation he screwed up. Discuss. I'm, I'm sorry. Why do you want the person who's leaving because they did something that quite frankly sounds illegal? Why are we paying him to train his predecessor? Like we should be saying, get out, never come back, new guy, see him, don't be him. Like why? And it'd be one thing if it was a slightly inflated price, like, oh, it was worth like 230,000 and they paid 250,000. Was that a good use of the museum's $20,000? But it was literally worth a third of the price. A third, $875,000, and it, it was down the street from the museum. I am getting loud, but it was down the street. Do you not know what your land is worth? Like, I own a house, and Tyler and I are constantly, Tyler and my husband, are constantly stalking all of the houses for sale in our neighborhood to figure out what they were. How do you not know? Is that like a homeowner thing? My yes. mom is currently doing the same thing because she's hoping that the house at the end of the street sells high because it will increase her property value. Well, but I'm the, like, is this what being an adult is? Mom. Then the issue is if they increase the property value, then your taxes go up. So it really depends if you're looking to sell in the longer short, short term. Mm. And it was kind of a gamble for us to buy the house. So we are like half hoping it goes up, half hoping it goes down because we're not looking to sell soon. But anyway, what Anyways, the hell were they up what, to? Okay, well, that was going to be my question. Do we know why they were buying that land? For a Did community you, center. A community center. Mm -hmm. They were trying really hard to be a social facet community and provide a space for community activities to but, the tune of $875,000 museum already is right like what's wrong with your own spaces <laughs> I mean I I could see how like have like building a separate community center would be different from offering programming within your own museums because a community center is different from a museum but think of all of the wonderful programs and events and things that you could have put on in your own space with that much money that is oh. almost a million dollars that could they? have been used on tangible things and instead it sounds like fraud where did they get $875,000 for? You could afford 400 of me at my current salary for $875,000. Well, well like, $875 too, but. I mean, I don't know what sort of budget that museum is working with. Um, I mean, I'm sure it might not be that difficult to find out, but I'm thinking like, that's gotta be. Are they all digging? of their budget are they digging or, or the half endowment? of their budget that's what i wonder oh when or, places dig into the endowment that's like my scandal bread and butter oh my god at least they have an endowment to dig into do they call do they? out call out to the john Mornall board members we need an endowment we need <laughs> we need an endowment folks Everybody needs an endowment. Let's be honest. I need an endowment. Endow yeah. all the museums. Endow me. I'm poor. Help me. <laughs> yeah, it's just a ridiculous amount of money. And there's not been 
that much coverage of the scandal. Like I feel like museums nationally should have been outraged. What year was this? This was, I wrote it down. Um, 2012. Yeah, okay. I graduated high school. I wonder if it didn't cause quite as much outrage because of the type of bad that it was because if you think about the things that like automatically cause outrage in the museum community it's like when you sell your collections or it, it it usually comes down to like when you're actually mucking around with the artifacts not saying that there's not like other museum scandals that don't involve other sorts of things but when you think about the things that usually become headlines it's when museums sell off their collections in inappropriate ways so I almost wonder if this was like it's a scandal but it's not enough for the museum community at large to see it as and it yeah it couldn't have been bad enough that it sullied the reputation of the museum president the fact that they couldn't justify paying him a quarter of a million dollars right like he still got a president yeah he still got a pretty sweet severance package so you would think that you know it was bad but it wasn't bad enough for them to just like cut ties completely so in recap this episode of booze and muses is not sponsored by board members teddy grams Go-Go Squeeze, Applesauce, Trader Joe's. What am I missing? Oh, Stella, Stella Artois, 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 all the Toises. (laughs) Like, let's just suffice to say we're not sponsored. In conclusion, in this episode of Boozy Musies, I threw my paper, 1971 Hans Hacky canceled exhibit Guggenheim rich waspy people shame on you museum of the bible collecting a ton of fake stuff shame on you shame on you get your providence president archie archibald providence providence i don't care is this a town in rhode island (laughs) (laughs) anyway 2012 Missouri History Museum Robert Archibald $875,000 land purchase for a community center shame on you should we say bye okay bye bye